and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversation with Scott Miller. That's me. Each week, I'm privileged to interview people from around the world, different industries, different paths to the C-Suite, whether they are CEOs, founders, CMOs, CIOs, CTOs, or are somehow leading an organization of variety of different missions. We like to have great conversations to understand what was their path? What were their insights and lessons learned? What uh, lessons might they share with you that you could perhaps avoid on your own path, perhaps to an entrepreneurialism uh, mission, perhaps your own journey to the C-suite, or whatever role you're in and are enjoying how you might become a better leader. Today, our guest is joining us from Sweden. His name is Nicholas Hedin. He is the founder and CEO of a company named Centiro, who has been a Franklin Covey client for many years and is expanding in the cloud computing and software industry. Nicholas, welcome to C-Suite Conversations. Thank you, it's a pleasure. So I feel like I know you because you've been a client of Franklin Covey's for, gosh, I think a decade plus. You are featured as one of our global, uh, you might say, ambassadors of Seven Habits, meaning we've taped uh, your leadership journey. We've, we've actually illustrated how the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People has helped to progress your mission and culture. And millions of people around the world have become more and more aware of your firm through also watching our documentaries about you. Today, we're not here to talk so much about the seven habits as we are about your own leadership journey. Before we do that, would you give our listening audience around the world a reorientation to who is Centiro, what is the nature of your business, and what is your expertise as an organization? I'd love to. So if you think about um, when you go uh, shopping off the web, you come to the checkout and you, you punch the checkout, you want to see how things can get delivered to your home. Now, whatever happens in the background is a digital exercise. You could call it digital plumbing, if you will, connecting sellers with buyers, with transportation providers, all of that connecting the supply chain web. So we learned during the pandemic that, that movement of goods and services to people is critical, be it vaccine, be it party dressers or spare parts. And we do that. We can do those connections with thousands of companies uh, across the world. Even uh, In fact, 175 countries we're operating in. We have colleagues in eight of them. And uh, we have become a critical part of our customer's journey to go more direct to consumer, go more digital, and also for industries that are perhaps more B2B to become more service centric when it comes to delivery. So that's in a nutshell, it's a lot of technology and cloud services involved there, but uh, anyone who wants to go deep on that can go to our website. But we connect things that move with buyers and sellers and transportation providers in between. That was a great value proposition, nicely done on your elevator speech. Similarly, would you talk a bit about your own professional journey, kind of reintroduce yourself to our global audience? I mentioned you are the CEO and founder of Centiro. You're one of the culture carriers. You're often named as one of the top CEOs in Sweden and most respected, admired cultures. Walk us through your own professional journey, if you will. So as many great stories happen, this was uh, a bit of a chance, you could say, because I was set to become an airline pilot. But the airline industry collapsed in Sweden at the time. And then I got a phone call from my brother who wanted me to run one of his companies. Now, I was young at the time, uh, still consider myself young, but uh, much younger then. And I got to run a company with three people in it that we were duplicating video cassettes at the time when you would push a video into a video recorder, for those of you who may remember that. 
that quickly grew from three to 20 people. I found myself in a leadership role because I was put there. And I started toying with concepts, which I later found out to be, to be critical and good. But that journey took me onto the path of actually founding Centero one day. But that, that's how it started. Uh, that's about 30 years ago when I started to toy with leadership concept with three people on board. And then that sort of brought me to the founding moment of, of Centero later in that story. And, and here we are now with 500 plus people uh, around the world. Nicholas, congrats on that. Uh, as I mentioned, Centero has won numerous best places to work types of awards. You've been the CEO. I mentioned you also have been a longtime client of our Franklin Covey organization, partnered with our local offices across uh, Scandinavia and Sweden as well. Our, our dear mutual friend, Henry, who is the partner in that business. You have been a, a model, if you will, of the seven habits of highly effective people. Tell me the impact the seven habits has had on you personally. What are your biggest insights from having become a bit of a master, if you will, of the seven habits? So let me just take you back a little bit to why we started considering seven habits. So we were at the point where we would scale. And I invented, uh, I invited Henry down. We needed a common language in the organizations. So we looked to seven habits. And Henry came here and we already won awards for our workplace culture and leadership. And Henry looked at me and said, what, what do you need us for? That was the greatest conversation I ever had with, with a salesperson, you could say, because we ended up uncovering why this was important. And for me personally, to answer your question, the longest journey you will ever take is integrating your heart with your mind. That's the 18 inches between your heart and your mind. And for me, it is about that. It's about finding your true self, you could say, by prioritizing your activities and how you go about uh, working with people, meeting people, talking to them, listening to them, etc. And when you can do that being fully yourself, which I think not only think, but believe and absolutely would say that Seven Habits has helped me to come to that point. Uh, I've done other leadership trainings in, 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 in very good schools, etc. But Seven Habits is still the foundation you can find everywhere. So if you unpick Seven Habits, you'll still find the tools that are practiced and teached uh, or taught in, in, in many good leadership schools. So for me, it was that integration to not to do leadership or do management, but actually be the leader. And, and it's you, it's 100% you, authentic you. Nicholas, you talked about how the seven habits uh, created a common language. It's a reason many organizations choose to implement that as part of their personal development leadership suite. A common language, common culture. Let's pivot to culture for a moment. As the CEO of a, you know, a global company that's growing enormously, do you find that in the, in the tumultuous world we're in, do you focus more on keeping a common, stable culture, or do you focus more on a flexible, nimble, evolving culture? Take that wherever you want to, but maybe give some insights to how you see culture being a competitive advantage and what stays the same and what perhaps should be open for evolution and maturity. So the short version of the answer of how we maintain our concept is, is we call that freedom within the well-designed frame, which means uh, we don't have a micromanagement culture. We actually believe in self-leadership to the fullest, which means we believe completely in trust and give a lot of mandate and leverage to, to our dear colleagues. Now, um, so when we scale, we uh, employ a lot of people. And there are some viewers out there uh, and listeners who might think that if you, if you have 100 people on board and you add another 100 people, 
you will dilute uh, your culture by 50%, right? Because the, the people you employ are culture-less, and you have all the culture-rich people <laughs> in your company. But the way we think about it is, is actually everybody who joins is enriching the culture, so it's adding to it. Now, it's still a freedom within a well-designed frame concept, which means that you can't go around changing or inventing your old titles. There are certain things we, we can't change to the concept. And anybody who's into organizational theory will hear a little bit of teal organizational principle in here. We're teal minus 10%, you could say. So, uh, which means that everybody who's invited gets to shape the culture as well. And when we do strategy development, for example, every single person on the company is consulted and talked to and talked with and listen to in terms of impacting where we should go. And this is unique, I think, uh, both investing so much time in that concept, but it gives us so much alignment and speed at the end of the day. So to your question, we let everybody uh, uh, influence it with their personality and their color. You know, we often hear culture is defined as how the vast majority of people behave the vast majority of time, or basically how the work gets done around here. This is a company you lead that's had explosive growth. You're growing internationally. We have 500 plus more employees and you're onboarding more. I I've got to think there are parts of your culture that were precious to you 400 employees ago that you see um, evaporating or you see perhaps not as prominent. What do you do when you realize there's parts of the magic that were early stage that are getting lost? As the leader, as the cultural leader, are there some specific things you do to make sure that principles and practices stay apparent in everybody's mindset and, their, and how they speak and how they collaborate and how they work with each other? Well, so uh, there are a couple of things going on in your question, right? So first of all, we started thinking about this when we were 18 and we were scared of becoming 20. And there was a person who said, I will, I will leave this company when we become 20 because that's when we come. And I asked why. It's when we become bureaucratic and slow and, and big. And it's like 20, really? Now, he stayed on for, for a longer time than that. But we've always tried to talk about what happens before it happens. So before we turn 100, mm. um, so what's going to happen, do we think? And what structures do we need to change? How do we need to address our growth before it happens? And right now, we're, we're 500 plus. We're thinking about a 1,000-headed organization. To your question, is, is there a fear connected to growing in a way where we completely alter our ego. Yes, there is that fear. And it's very present here and now, it's every day, when we can see the little telltale signs that actually, when you start to say, well, someone else should fix that. I think it's a great idea if somebody would just fix that, right? You hear that it's not the me here now. So we're steeped in the me here now principle, which means that whatever it is, a coffee cup to bring to the dishwasher, it's you. And if, if you need to tidy up the code and solution, it's you. You, you are actually the me, part of the Me Here Now movement, right? So the scare is, of course, and the discussion we're having, which is very rewarding in the sense that if we ask the question pointy, is it a law or, or a nature force, natural force, that when you turn a certain number, you have to become anonymous, boring, and gray? And the answer is, of course, no. So the question we ask ourselves is, how do we keep it authentic? How do we keep it real? A lot of it has to do with our organizational structure, our team-based view of the world, where you're actually part of a group of eight, uh, regardless of how big the company is, you're still part of a smaller group. But yeah, there are lots of sort of discoveries and questions revolving uh, around that. And we, we 
absolutely do not want to turn bureaucratic or, or predictable in, in the bad sense of the word. It's intriguing. I don't mean this for this to be a pitch for the seven habits. We rarely talk about our content on this podcast, but it's the essence of habit one, be proactive. It's really anticipating how might the culture change if we move to a thousand? What systems and processes should we have in place? Beautifully said. I wanna get a bit personal for a moment. I'd like you to think about over the course of your leadership career, what perhaps has been a single defining moment? Maybe it was a, a positive or, or a negative challenging moment that really defined what your leadership methodology would be. Could you take a, maybe a breath and a thought and think about something that was uh, monumental enough in your life, professionally or even personally, and what's the impact it's had on your own leadership style? Was there a person, was there a client, was there a, a challenge, something you face that others might identify with and learn from? I think the, the, the short answer, there are several, and it's picking just one is, is difficult, but I'll try to paint a picture which sort of gives an answer to the question, right? So, so first part of it, how we've been challenged uh, by, in principle by clients. Yes, I've been asked to lie once, for example, which is a definite, I, never, ever. It was at the time, this was a while back, so we can almost talk about it, right? So this is more than a decade ago. And uh, it was one of our larger clients at the time, and I ended up offering all the money back in the contract terminated if they would still consider, if, if they... If, if it was the view of the company itself that I should go lying to people to get business done. So I draw, drew a line in the sand there, uh, which was, I learned the hard way, which, so if you defend uh, your culture, your core values, you have to go look where the, where, the, where the posts are, the post that says this is where it ends and this is where it starts. So this is back to the buck stops here, right? You need to determine where the line is. And that's a hard job to do. So that was a lot of soul searching. Now, spin forward to a time when we had a competitor that really uh, challenged us in the market. This is also a while back. It's a decade ago or so. And it was threatful on a personal level. And I had to really dig deep. The question was on the table, should I get out of industry or not? And it was, I revolved around the family and myself, and I ended up coming up to this, I own my initiative to 100%. No single other person, company, entity, or otherwise, should dictate how I think about things. My, the choice is mine. And this is core to seven habits. I have responsibility. I can respond myself. I don't need help from the outside world. That was a defining moment to the nth degree for me because it liberated me in thinking. So after that thought and, and after that sort of moment, there have been several moments afterwards where that principle was tested. And I felt relieved in the sense that I felt free, really free to think on my own because no single person should or could define my ways of thinking. So those two stories, I guess, gives a picture both of the core value set and the fact that you need to defend it. So my principle is heart, mind, and backbone. Backbone is last where you defend your principles. So the first story was on that, and the second one was on you actually, the power of your choice is, is greater than you think. Nicholas, what's your number one leadership competency? What do you do the best at? What's your biggest leadership strength? 
I think the, the feedback I hear, so this should, of course, always be based on what others say, right? Uh, the feedback I hear is presence and authenticity and being approachable. So uh, a shout out to the CEOs out there. One of the feedbacks I receive, and I have a principle, I treat everyone the same. Now, this is a hard thing to do when you become large and you need to invent formats to become available. I do uh, a show every Friday for 30 minutes where I invite all the colleagues and everybody could come on the show and, and, and as, give me questions anonymously, etc. And I will respond to them. So there have been many ways uh, throughout the years, but it's the core, one of the core things which I'm really good at. That's the feedback I'm getting. We also see it in the surveys uh, is presence, authenticity and being approachable. And I don't know who invented the idea that C-level people or CEOs should be unapproachable or unattainable even in terms of conversation. I think it's a shout out to everyone to, to get real and talk to uh, why do we need an undercover boss program, right? I mean, become authentic with your colleagues. It's not, it's not a hard thing to do. And you, there's so much value to be provided by being your authentic self in relationship with your colleagues regardless of title, rank, or whatever. I don't know when, what in systems you're inventing to keep yourselves out of things, but to spend uh, a day, two, or a week in talking to, to colleagues and give them time. They, it, you will get so much back. How about the flip side of that conversation? If uh, there was a critique about your leadership style, which of course there is, everybody has detractors and people that don't resonate, what's your biggest area of growth in terms of your leadership capability? So I have uh, not only one weakness, I have several. Uh, and it's, I think the, when you get to know them, that's when you can really get going, et cetera. In my case, I would say that if there's too little time and I can sort of, I can go too fast at it, not spend enough time to explain and give time to listen. Uh, so that's the critique I would hear is that I'm moving too fast sometimes. And it, 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 get, it gets, it conveys a stressed version of me. And, and that's a, never a good thing. Because um, imagine when you're the CEO, you magnify everything by 10 or 100 times. So I, I try to keep myself to my power balance in terms of energy and, and keep myself calm and balanced and all that. But sometimes it's, it's a little bit too stressful, a little bit too quick. And I shut people off a little bit too quickly. I, when I discover that, I go back and apologize, uh, which I think is a wise thing to do. But, but that's one of our, my development areas. Um, I learned to say no to a number of things a number of years ago in, in a coaching and mentoring session. So I've stopped doing a number of things which I was really bad at. And I think it, leadership is about that. It's to understand what do you know that you know, what do you know that you don't know, and know the difference between the two. Nicholas, we're taping this interview in the early summer of 2022. It's too soon to call it post-pandemic because much of the world is still very much facing the pandemic differently, fortunately, than a year or two ago. Uh, but I'd like you to kind of forecast forward leadership competencies of the future. If you had to assimilate maybe the top three or four competencies that you'll be looking for in future leaders at Centuro, for that matter, leadership competencies that are ubiquitous and translatable across cultures, companies, countries, industries. As you look in the future with you know, the impact of the pandemic and the global economy and you know, military conflicts and 
you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain and, you know, pandemics in the future, things like that. What are the three or four competencies that you're looking for that you think will be most important as people rise in their careers? I think the pandemic has taught us a number of things. So old management or the, the, the sort of the classical management style of having everybody in the room, et cetera, is being challenged in so many ways. And uh, there are many out there who will know what I'm talking about. Is, is your team still coming back into the office? Should they? What's the, what's the public sort of message from your company and your stance on what to do? That's still being debated. And there are, of course, many camps in this, and I won't take sides. What I will say is that it's surfaced something that I do believe is critically important. And, and a lot of people who have spent time at home only to realize that they actually live life all the day. So we talk a lot about work-life balance in the sense of life-life balance. Life is actually happening at work too. The, the skills I would be looking for, both in current leaders and future leaders, is empathy and a human-centric human view. Because, because the things you just mentioned are, are macro challenges um, at a scale I don't think we've seen before in the sense that the aggregate of everything happening at the same time. Um, at least it's an interesting period to live through and live in. And I think that you need the power of your organization. You need all the skills and, and ideas that can come out of your organization. Why would you limit it to just your own competency? Because that's the risk you stand when you think you have all the answers as a leader. And I, I would look for leaders who ask more questions than come with answers because you want to unleash the diversity and the power of your team, regardless of what industry you're in. We've seen this in many, many different ways, with, also with our customers, that if you can tap into the energy and the pool of, of, well, both inspiration, innovation, and thoughts that come from your organization, you stand a much better chance to navigate the challenges. Now, think if you sail the icebergs in, 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 in the northern part of the globe, do you want one person in the watch out, or do you actually want as many as you could get? Ask yourself that question and then turn into night. Do you still want just want one person standing looking for the icebergs? So for me, it's about leadership that can untap the human potential. And, and that requires empathy. It requires different prioritizations. I do believe that the process-oriented view of how you industrialize your organization is fading out a little bit. There's nothing wrong with structure and process. But human centricism is coming back to the table big time. Nicholas, maybe the flip side of that, too, in your own experience with people who either you've had to exit or clients perhaps you've worked with where the leadership was, in your view, not effective. What are the, what are the leadership traits, personality traits that you see in leaders that get them in the most trouble? It minimizes their influence. It destroys the culture. What are some things that you've seen, maybe in yourself or colleagues, where you might want to give a watch out to say, be very thoughtful of this because this will end badly for your career, for your reputation, for your credibility? I think where we see people ending up in trouble, regardless if it's in our organization or outside of our organization, remember, we work with high-class brands, uh, blue-chip brands across the planet, and, and we meet a lot of people, and there, there are high-intensity situations where we solve some of the most critical problems in our industry. And there have been times when people lost their jobs because a few simple things. So first of all, you need to keep your promises. Uh, that, that's a core thing. It may sound really simple and basic, but the moment you destroy, you start destroying your credibility by saying that one thing and doing another, 
you're gone. You, you can almost not, regardless of what you do after that, you, you lose so much efficiency and leverage, it's almost hard to recover. And people will detect it regardless if you think they do or not. And again, we've seen people lose their jobs because of that. Uh, in high tense situations, imagine if somebody is now lying about us in a partnership and that gets discovered further out in the organization, that's never a good thing. Uh, so keeping our promises and keeping uh, transparency is one thing. Then I guess um, it's by prioritization, right? It's, uh, how do you make your priorities vis visible? It's, it's kind of sitting close to the first one. Uh, but it's not as harsh as breaking a promise, but rather, are you transparent with how you prioritize as a leader? Uh, are, are you clear to your leadership team or to your peers or to your colleagues on what priorities are? Now, we ask of our leaders, they define a hashtag so we can know what they are, and we put them down on pictures and Polaroids. We did it last week with the whole leadership team. Uh, because if you um, if you cover up what you're about to do, your agenda, and you, and it's it's again it's a similar thing, but it's not really lying, but it's being unclear and untransparent. I guess that can you will never release your true potential and efficiency. You could even end up in trouble. Nicholas, last question. Our time is ending here. Uh, how has the pandemic changed you as a friend, a colleague, a family member, a leader, a CEO? a champion of growth, how are you different as a result of what we've all been through for the last 26 months, some cases more? How are you different? That's a really great question. Um, at some level, I hope I am the same person in terms of core values, etc. However, I've had to change, and there's a term I would use, I wouldn't tie myself to old masts. Now, there were a couple of concepts from a leadership point of view, which I would be a proponent of uh, before, which I've had to change. On a personal level, I guess that I'm more sensible to the needs of people around me. And, and I, so I got an email yesterday from a colleague, for example, who, uh, and she's employed with us. She works here in Sweden, but she has family elsewhere. And she's now asking me personally, could I live in a different country and still work for you and help my family off the weekends? And I guess the, the, the pandemic widen that window. I, yeah. I regarded myself as human-centric before, but I think the pandemic has calibrated so many sensors, not only in myself, but also out uh, in the general public and, and in organizations that now need to, well, get to grips with this, right? And I think it's, it's an eye-opener for a lot of people that, that people live real lives and they prioritize differently, and that affects me as well. And we said, uh, me and my colleague went to Boston the other day to visit our U.S. colleagues, and, and we said many times that life is too short to, to do sort of weird things in the organization or bad things to our organization. Let's focus on the good stuff. And I think that prioritization and discrimination of what is actually a good outcome or not, for not only for myself, but for the organization, has been really calibrated during the pandemic. It has raised a number of those questions to the surface. Beautifully said. Nicholas Hedin, founder and CEO of Centiro, thanks for your time today on behalf of the entire Franklin Covey company, especially our colleagues in our Swedish operation, which has been some of our most successful and long-term partners globally. I appreciate you being a champion of the Franklin Covey company. Thank you for being a great model illustration of how the seven habits of highly effective people can build a 
uh, human-centric, as you said, culture. Uh, great success to you and your colleagues on your way to 1,000-plus employees, and have a great Swedish summer as well. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation in the C-Suite. <laughs>